Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. I direct the Europe program here at CSIS. Um, we are delighted to have a conversation. It may not be a typical conversation that you would think as you come uh, uh, to, to a program that the Europe program is sponsoring, but over the last several years, CSIS has taken a very deep dive into a basket of issues under Russian malign influence, and we've particularly been focused on Russian economic malign influence and through a series of reports that we've produced called the Kremlin Playbook. But perhaps our second edition, the Kremlin Playbook to the Enablers, we really focused on money laundering and the use of illicit financing. And so when it was an opportunity, when we, we, we were aware of guests and visitors, from Cyprus and the banking industry, we thought this is a great way. We did not focus on Cyprus in our Kremlin playbook work, but it's always helpful to understand not only how uh, malign influence works, but most importantly, how countries are fighting it and enhancing transparency, particularly in the financial sector. So uh, because, uh, although I try to understand as much as I can about money laundering and illicit finance, I needed a wingman for this conversation. And on my very far left, we are so delighted to have Eric Lorber here. Um, Eric is the Senior Director in the Center, of, Center on Economic and Financial Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Eric and I were um, on congressional testimony together a couple of months ago before the House Intelligence Committee on exactly Russian malign influence and sanctions, so I thought there's no one better to uh, help me pilot this. So Eric and I are going to be co-moderating this discussion, but the main event is centered around our guests, and let me please uh, welcome them warmly and introduce them. Immediately to my left, we have Yanis Matis, Mas Matsis, am I doing okay? Matsis, uh, who is the Chief Executive Officer uh, and Executive Member of the Board of Directors of the Hellenic Bank in Cyprus. Uh, he has served previously as a non-executive member of the Board of Directors of the Hellenic Bank, and we are absolutely delighted to have you here with us. We also, again, moving down the line, we have Chris Pastelades, uh, first Deputy CEO of the Bank of Cyprus. Uh, he, in his current capacity as first Deputy CEO, he is responsible for corporate affairs, legal services, regulatory affairs, and group compliance. And then finally, we have with us uh, Mario Scandas, a director of Group Compliance Division uh, in the Bank of Cyprus, and he previously worked as the legal representative and head of the Bank of Cyprus's operations in Greece, so has a different uh, perspective as well. He is also the president of the Cyprus Integrity Forum and the vice president and founding member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners in Cyprus, so the technical expertise we so need. So. That we, we want to understand the lessons that we have learned after the 2013 financial crisis in Cyprus. Um, uh, a lot of big thinking had to be done. Uh, shareholders were harmed uh, in that process, a bail-in process, and it transformed the Cypriot financial sector. Ionis, I want to I begin with you. Help us understand what were the most important lessons that you think Cyprus learned, and how has it transformed the banking process in Cyprus six years later? Welcome. Thank you very much, Heather. Good morning, all. Thank you for being here. The 2000, uh, coming straight to the question, the, the 2013 uh, financial crisis in Cyprus uh, actually was a wake-up call for all the stakeholders on the island. The, a lot of the, the, the main lesson, the main lesson that we learned during the, uh, when 2013, the bail-in happened, was that it was our own bad practices, especially with regards to practices fighting financial crime, that resulted in the bail-in of 2013. Just to give you some historical context, what happened in Cyprus between 2000 and 2013 was a five-fold increase in deposits on the island. 
uh, from 100% of GDP to 500% of GDP, and that's only in a period of actually eight years, from 2000 to 2008. Uh, a number of reasons behind that, uh, the accession of Cyprus into the European Union and the adoption of Cyprus of uh, the, the euro as a currency. Uh, so Cyprus suddenly gained uh, an increased attraction from the Eastern Bloc as a, and also the low tax uh, rates in Cyprus. So Cyprus gaining attraction as a destination for funds coming from the Eastern Bloc. Unfortunately, during that period, uh, as the banking sector, but also all the stakeholders, the government, the legal framework, the regulatory framework, were quite relaxed. And money was, and clients were accepted without the stringent standards that one would expect if one wants to properly uh, fight and ensure that financial crime is uh, eliminated and doesn't have any place in Cyprus. So this increase in deposits, five-fold increase in deposits inflated the bank's balance sheets. The banks gave out these deposits as loans. Clearly, there was a credit expansion that was uncontrolled and resulted in NPs, non-performing exposures on the bank balance sheets, which eventually led to the bail-in. But if you look at un under the bonnet, the bail-in wasn't the NPs, it was the increase in deposits that was due to the relaxed AML standards. So, main lesson learned in 2013 was we really need to get our act together and tighten our standards for fighting financial crime. That was a lesson to the banks, but it was also a lesson to the whole island because the economy was broken at that point in time. So government, together with the regulator, the, Cyprus, the Central Bank of Cyprus and the European Central Bank, together with the Association of Cyprus Banks and the banks on the island, got together and began a very intensive reform program, legislative reform, regulatory reform, bank practice reform, to ensure that the whole system, and the banks specifically, follow robust standards in the way that we try to fight financial crime, together with other standards in banking that were at the same time improved. And I would say, I mean, just I will stop there, uh, but I would say that's the main lesson that was learned in 2013, and that really got us to change completely our attitude over the last six years bringing us to where we are today. Thank you. Eric, I'm going to turn to you and maybe you would ask uh, Chris uh, the next question. Fantastic. Thank you, Heather, and thank you for, uh, for our, our panelists for being here today. Um, I have a whole list of questions that I want to ask you guys, but I'll keep it uh, brief initially. So I guess, Chris, my, my question for you is thinking about um, the upcoming release of the MoneyVal evaluation. For those in the crowd, MoneyVal is the Financial Action Task Force regional style body that's conducting its mutual evaluation of Cyprus right now. What do you expect to see uh, when the evaluation comes out? Are you optimistic? Um, are there areas of concern that, that you are thinking about? Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks, Eric. Thanks for the question. Um, since uh, 2013, uh, the, bank, the banking system has been undergoing dramatic changes as a result of the crisis. Uh, the banking sector has had recognized that we needed to change direction, that we needed to become a reputable uh, place to do business. Uh, we needed to introduce best practice. So the effort began through introducing the appropriate legislation and regulation. We worked very closely with our uh, regulators, uh, being the, the Central Bank of Cyprus, and later the ECB and others. And as a result, we did introduce uh, the necessary reg uh, legislation and, and regulation. And we went a step further because we are a banking system that is uh, operating in a service-based economy and, it was, and given the legacy issues, it was felt that we needed to do more. Uh, and today we do have one of the toughest ML uh, landscapes in the European Union. Manival has been quite helpful over the years in identifying some of the weaknesses we had 
And over time, working with them, actually, we have managed uh, to, uh, to overcome some of those uh, weaknesses. Uh, although there is still uh, progress, there is still uh, way, way to go, there is, there is still more to do. So, um, yeah, we do expect the Manival report in, uh, in December. Uh, we are positive. We, we do expect uh, a positive uh, outcome for the banking system. But it remains to be seen. But we look forward, actually, to see what Manival has to say about our progress so far. Marius, if I may ask you, on the compliance question, you are where the rubber meets the literal road. You're the front line on this war against illicit financing. I'm going to ask you what you are most proud of in accomplishing over the last six years in compliance, and then what keeps you up at night? What are we, what are compliance officers missing? The good thing is that I don't have a young child keeping me awake at night. <laughs> I don't know, teenagers keep you up too. Okay. But anyway, from my side, I would like to uh, thank you, Heather, for the invitation and thank all of, the, all of you for being here with us today to, uh, at least it gives us a chance to share the work that we have done and for which we're really proud of. So uh, uh, what, uh, what I'm really, I feel proud for the banking sector in Cyprus, and that I was part of it from my own side and being at the front line of this fight, is the fact that um, we have achieved a cultural transformation in Cyprus. It wasn't a remediation, a simple remediation, even with strict measures. But we have managed to achieve the first stage, at least, of a cultural transformation. And this is because we have done one thing that we do not normally see in any other jurisdictions and even Harris jurisdictions that uh, kept us uh, alert over the last uh, couple of years, like in Latvia and Estonia, and that is that we have accepted that there was a wrong doing. And uh, we have managed to realize that keeping in silence and in denial of that would not lead to the desired results. We have therefore taken this first step and working on this first step that, yes, there was something that needed to change, we started a series of reforms, a series of uh, immense measures, I would say, uh, in order to achieve this cultural transformation. The second aspect for which it really segregated the efforts uh, of our island is the fact that we did not solely aim in adhering to the provisions of the law. In order to change and especially to change perceptions of the past, we needed to demonstrate that we have taken the extra step. And that is why we have consciously, without any legal obligation, we have adhered to uh, OFAC sanctions, although we were not a US person to do that. We have undertaken additional measures in UBO recognition, which class us today as a model in doing so, because we are one of the few jurisdictions that require to meet face to face with the UPO prior to acceptance of the onboarding or during the time of his or her review. And we are, we are one of the few jurisdictions that we have abolished completely any compliance reliance on any professional intermediary. And these are just a few examples. And uh, yes, I'm glad that and proud that we have taken this path. Now as to the question of what keeps me awake uh, during the evenings is to maintain this standard. This is a world-class standard that Cyprus, this small island, has achieved. And really, it keeps me awake because it's quite easier to achieve it, but much more difficult to maintain it at that right level. Thank you, Eric. Before I uh, turn to the question, I think we just want to make sure everyone in our audience, UBO, Ultimate Beneficial Ownership. Yes, yes. Uh, and Eric, you may actually want to spend a moment or two explaining particularly why that's important and why there's legislation before Congress that is looking at UBO. So I, I yes. may actually make my moderator yes. work as a little bit of a panelist, too. I'm sorry yeah. about that. Eric, over to you for the next question. If I, if, I could just start, if I could just clarify that uh, looking into the T Transparency Act, the Illicit Act, and the Counter Act that very recently has been uh, passed through the Congress, uh, I, I must admit that these are steps towards the right direction. But still, these are the first steps 
to be recognized UBO is based on what the client submits or just setting a threshold does not necessarily engage directly in identifying and, per, and actually assuring that that is the right ultimate beneficial owner and taking some extra measures to that respect as well. Uh, so, do you want to weigh in, Chris? I was, I was going to ask Marius actually to explain the process of identifying the, the UBOs. I think it's unique and gives the, you know, I think, I think it's, it is the, the essence, it is the substance of, you know, at the very hard core of our efforts. Okay, of course. Um, so, in summary, when we request to uh, identify the ultimate beneficial owners, we do that on the basis of shareholding as well as on the basis of significant control. And uh, actually, only very, very recently, we have aligned the basic threshold for identifying UBOs on the basis of shareholding to 25% as per the FATF's uh, guidance and principles, but until 2018, when the fourth EU AML directive was transposed into law and we have aligned with the FATF principles, we have been identifying UBOs on the basis of only 10%, and actually we keep doing that for high-risk customers. So once we identify, and on this basis, we can potentially have four UBOs, three on the basis of shareholding of more than 25%, and one on the basis of significant control. How do, I, how do we identify significant control? Once we get on the information, we actually review the Articles of Association and any other powers granted by the Board of Directors to specific individuals within the organization. And if there's uh, significant control identified for an individual, then that individual for us is part of this group of beneficial owners. Uh, and as I said before, we don't just stop there. Once we gather all the information, we perform our work and we confirm who is the UBO, we request to have a face-to-face -face meeting uh, with that person. And trust me, a lot come out from such a meeting and a face-to-face -face meeting because when you engage with them, directly engage, and you have an interview and conversation, not only you realize if that person is the real person and the real UBO behind the company, but at the same time, it helps us build a proper economic profile of that person so that whoever reads that economic profile, they can easily understand uh, who the customer is. It's very, very interesting. Um, I'd like to follow up and, and uh, work for my, uh, work for my, my uh, time to, to chat here in response to Heather's question. So can I ask you in terms of the UBO information that you do collect and how you do it, is it UBO simply at the time of account opening, or is it also, does Cyprus have in place rules and regulations related to uh, company formation UBOs as well? Because in the U.S., we've already got, obviously, the account, form, uh, the account opening uh, ultimate beneficial ownership rule that's been in place, and what we're talking about now is um, the actual company formation process, which is another loophole that illicit actors have been able to sort of uh, walk through in the United States. So does Cyprus lump these both together in terms of its regulatory structure, or is there still work to be done on the company formation side of the ledger? Okay. Uh, the answer is uh, clear-cut here, and yes, both on the company formation stage as well on the actual running of the company, uh, we do the work uh, in order to identify the ultimate beneficial owner. And something else that uh, we actually do, the work doesn't stop there on the onboarding stage, or it doesn't even stop at the review stage of the client, whether it takes place in a year in cases of high-risk customers or in case it takes place in three years in the case of moderate and low-risk uh, low customers. But it is an ongoing real-time monitoring of every single transaction and behavioral, transactional behavioral of that, of that person and of that client. And we have um, built within our financial crime systems who are, which are real-time uh, financial crime monitoring systems, uh, certain behavioral patterns based on the economic profile that we have identified for that client, for that UBO. And in case any uh, transaction on a solo basis or on a cumulative basis indicate a variance uh, from that uh, pattern that we have identified in, immediately we are alerted and we take action and actually perform a review whether 
the information we have is actually right or not. Therefore, we don't wait until the one year, the lapse of the one year to commence again the review process, but that's on a, done on an ongoing basis. I don't mean to, Mar Mario, so I don't mean to pick on you, but I do have one more question for you. I'm sorry. But it's, uh, it relates to your earlier comment about um, the implementation or adoption of the OFAC specially designated nationals list yes. uh, and then the sort of conservative risk approach that Cyprus has taken. So I know that the, the approach um, essentially uh, prohibits transactions with OFAC SDNs, but beyond that also um, close family members, for example, of SDNs. Of what? Uh, cl close close family members of SDNs yes. and entities in which SDNs have even a small ownership percentage. Mm -hmm. Correct. What's been the response from um, both uh, other financial institutions outside of Cyprus with whom you have relationships, but then also your clients to that revised standard? Because as far as I know, there's no, even in the United States, uh, that, that's a more conservative standard than, than financial institutions and corporates are required to take. Eric, could you translate what an STN is for the non-acronym? Special designated national. It's a sanctioned person, Thank yeah, you. basically. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so basically, uh, first of all, uh, I would like to, if you allow me to elaborate a bit more on the aspect of sanctions, why do we consider that Cyprus has consciously taken such a huge step? Um, we don't just uh, consider as sanctioned persons the actual SDN or the related parties of the SDN. And when we're talking about legal persons, uh, we don't just go for those related parties that are more than 50% controlled by the SDN, as OFAC prescribes, but also we move lower than that and we take even from 1% of holding of an SDN. In a party, we consider that a sanctioned person and they are treated accordingly. And also, we apply OFAC uh, sanctions in all currencies and not just in US dollars. Uh, so, uh, coming to, to your question about um, how our stakeholders, and primarily our clients, reacted to that. Obviously, the initial reaction was that uh, they felt discomfort. Not, not in the sense that our clients were doing something wrong, but in the sense that we were taking uh, an extra measure that would put an undue liability on them just in case they find themselves in such a situation. However, that for us, that was an one-way road. We couldn't compromise a best international standard and on the basis of just um, kind of creating some upset in the relationship with any of our clients or any of our stakeholders. And we tried to understand, to explain to all of our stakeholders that that was on their credit, what we were doing, because that would lead to a long-term uh, sustainability for their own business that would add to the credibility of our relationship. And I would, uh, if okay, I would like to give one example of what's happened. You'll know that, uh, well, at least most of you would know that during the last issue of the OFAX list issued in April 2018, one of the SDNs was Victor Wechselberg. Victor Wechselberg has been a client of our bank. And uh, since that, first, uh, that very first day, uh, he has been, uh, all of his activity has been frozen. And obviously, because he knew that we were not a US person, uh, he actually took the step of suing us in the UK courts. And only last month, the UK courts have ruled in favor of us that although we are not legally obliged to do that, we have done the right thing because we have actually uh, addressed a potential secondary sanction that would implicate us in a legal action as well. Therefore that, but even if we were sued and even if the decision was in favor of the client, it wouldn't matter to us because this is our culture and our culture cannot be compromised because one client of ours doesn't like it. Because if he doesn't like it, even after we explain the reason why we have taken all these measures and that they are in favor for our relationship, and he doesn't accept that, then obviously they can move to another jurisdiction because definitely no bank in Cyprus would allow uh, this to be, uh, to be compromised. All right, I have a question both for Giannis and, and for Chris, and I, I want to pull from a, a Wall Street Journal article that was written last September. The title of the article was, U.S. Takes on Russia's Favorite Money Haven, Cyprus. And a quote, and I want you to either agree with the quote, viciously disagree with it, but tell me why. 
The bail-in was foolish. To get rid of the Russian money, they gave the banks to the Russians, meaning that the ownership structure, they went from shareholder to owner. So I would welcome both of your thoughts on, on that and help us understand uh, the ownership of your banks a little bit better. Chris, you want to start? Thank sure. You. Let me take this. Um, it's true to say that the unintended consequence of the bailing uh, was the fact that um, Russian depositors were converted into Russian equity holders and therefore shareholders in the banks, at least in, in the main bank of the island. Uh, this was true. Now these, are, these people were not natural holders of, of equity, they were depositors, so they were not interested in keeping their shares. So over time, a lot of, of, a lot of these people have reduced their um, exposure in equities and they have left the bank. But more importantly, back in 2014, the bank uh, raised another billion of equity uh, through a, a share capital increase, uh, at which um, a lot of U.S. investors and U.K. investors participated, and the Russians were diluted. As a result, the Russian um, participation in the Cyprus banking as, as shareholders is quite limited, and. Uh, to my knowledge, there are no Russians on any boards, at least in, in, uh, in, in the main banks, and they have actually no say in the running of the banks. Uh, sure. I think the, where we are today proves that the statement is not right, so disagree, in that there is no effective shareholding, Russian shareholding into the banking sector in Cyprus. So six years on, there is nothing. At the beginning, as Chris said, there was something, no more. Whether the bail-in was foolish, uh, I also disagree with that. Uh, as I referred to earlier, it was our own wrongdoing that led to the increase of the deposits of the non-performing exposures and therefore to the bail-in. If a company, and the bank is a company, is effectively bankrupt, then why should the taxpayer pick up the bill? The shareholders picked up the bill and then the depositors who are creditors to the company effectively. So I consider what's, what's fair is fair. There is regulation that says depositors are protected up to 100K, but up to there. So if you have a, a larger deposit, then you could lose it. So even as a depositor, you need to go with your eyes open which bank you deposit money to. Um, uh, also, allow me, uh, please, uh, just to make a comment on uh, on the earlier issue that you uh, raised, that you asked uh, Marius, what keeps him up at night. Yes. As a banker, and coming back to the depositor, yeah, we have shareholders that we need to generate value for, but we also have depositors that we need to protect. We are executives in banks. The one type of risk that the bank cannot take is a binary risk a risk that you can wake up tomorrow and you don't have a bank anymore. And, and non-performing exposures or a rise of non-performing exposures is not a binary risk. It's gradual and you can take corrective measures over time, including raising capital to correct your issue like the banking sector in Cyprus did. AML is a binary risk. This, look what happened with Danske Bank. Look what happened with FBME, which was a Tunisian uh, um, uh, bank in uh, Tanzania, sorry, uh, bank in um, Cyprus, a subsidiary of a Tanzanian bank in Cyprus. Overnight, they shut down because of AML issues. That is why we really need to be vigilant and to continue our reform progress, of course, and our training and change the culture of the bank to embed into the DNA of the bank that these matters are serious. We cannot take binary risks. May I ask how it's changed the, the, your, the, the profile, the economic profile of your banks? Uh, this is a pretty significant change. Uh, and we already know that 
EU banks are under great strain. Uh, profitability is very tough. Yes. How do you how do you how are you managing this in this new gold standard best of class practices? It has been very hard. The drop to, to begin with since 2013 to today, there has been a significant rise in compliance cost to the bank in order to ensure best standards. For example, in our bank, in 2013, we had 15 staff in compliance. Today, we have 63. So that's more than four times increase. We invested in training, not only of compliance staff, but of all the staff in such matters, another cost, and we invested in systems, further cost. So you have your costs increasing. At the same time, you close accounts as you go through a remediation of all the accounts that we opened before 2013, that we realized a lot of them were high risk and unacceptable for a bank to have due to the binary issues that I was mentioning earlier. We started closing accounts. We closed from 35,000 legal entities, we're today to below 10,000. That was a significant drop in revenue. So you drop your revenue, you, you increase your cost, your profitability really, really gets hit. It, it could have been even existential, to be honest, for the, for the banks. Thankfully, at the same time, the economy has been growing very rapidly. 3.8% average per year growth. Uh, one of the, I think, the second fastest in Europe since 2013, the second gro fastest growing in Europe. And that has helped provide to the banks that finance this economy an alternative revenue stream that balanced this loss from the international businesses and therefore ensured our survival. And today we are at a place that is much better, there's still work to do, I will say it again, but at the place where we are much better than at any point probably ever. So. Yes, uh, let me add. Uh, by saying that um, you know, this has been a very painful process, as, as mentioned by Yanis earlier. Uh, imagine, I mean, the banks, have, uh, before the crisis, the banks amounted to eight times GDP, the size of the banks, of the banking sector, in terms of assets. Today, this is 2.5. So there has been massive deleveraging because of the various actions that we are describing here to you today. And because we have also exited from the other countries, so we have no presence in any other country, no bank has a presence abroad, when we are confined to the jurisdiction of Cyprus and to financing our clientele. We felt that we needed to take these measures because we wanted, and I would like to repeat this, to create a very reputable uh, banking system so as to be able to service the economy and not get into any and take on any sort of binary risks, if I can use Yanis's phrase. Um, so we, we are adopting best practices. We are investing a lot in, uh, in AML, in training, in you know, doubling our um, uh, compliance officers in terms of staff and in technology. Technology is another element which, which is um, becoming more important because as we all know, crime becomes more sophisticated so we must be in a position to combat crime effectively. So investment in technology is essential going forward. Importantly, if I may add, Importantly, tone from the top. The, the Board of Directors, in, up to 2013, Cyprus banks had Board of Directors that were all Cypriots, that were not bankers, most of them, that were from the trade in the industry. A, a lot of them were clients of the bank they were on the board of, uh, and, and for a lot of them, they were big borrowers of, those, of those banks. That's not good governance. Mm. That has changed with, uh, with the help of the European Central Bank as well, and the Cyprus Central Bank, that has changed drastically. Nowadays, the boards are balanced. It's mostly, there's a lot of banking experience, and there is a lot of international uh, persons on the boards of Cyprus banks. We, uh, we have, uh, in, at, at all banks, uh, monthly board meetings, 
and perhaps more often. In my update as a CEO to the board of directors, every month I have to give them a detailed list of everything that happened in AML, of all high-risk accounts that would for every reason have been concerned by name. By name, every high-risk account, and we have to go through. But this is toned from the top. The compliance officer, the chief compliance officer, does not report into the executive, but into the audit committee of the board, the direct uh, reporting line. So in all of that, it's actually filtering down the institution in that this intense focus to ensure that we get this right. Eric, I'm going to turn to you, let you add that I'm going to have the final question, then we're going to turn to this very knowledgeable audience. If you think our questions are tough, look out, here they come. So, Eric, please. Fantastic. Thanks, Heather. I just want to uh, uh, follow up with one question about technology, uh, and not technology from the compliance side, but um, technology that seems to be moving in a way that's going to uh, provide additional opportunities for your customers. So here I'm thinking in particular of virtual digital currency, and here I'm also thinking of uh, real-time payment systems, essentially a payment system that's so fast that you cannot screen the transaction before it happens. So you basically have to do a look back to figure out if something illicit has occurred. How are you thinking about adopting new technologies given Cyprus's uh, sort of prohibition on many transactions with virtual digital currency? And, and also, how are you thinking about real-time payment systems? Okay, okay I'll, uh, I'll take this and then. As far as digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, and so on and so forth, we are not dealing with these currencies, and uh, we are not onboarding clients who are dealing with these currencies. Uh, now, as far as the technological evolution is concerned and the digital transformation is concerned, we view these as a, a na the natural step of the evolution of banking from the retail banking perspective. At the end of the day, we are here to service our clients. We, we are, as Bank of Cyprus, I'll give an example. We, are, we have appointed IBM, and we are working very closely with IBM in transforming the bank into, in, into upgrading the digital channels of the bank. Um, we, the objective also is to move uh, banking transactions over the counter banking transactions into the digital channels because it makes sense for the client and because it is cost efficient for the bank. So this is the direction we're taking, President. Uh, allow me also to make a comment. The digital currencies we are not involved with. What uh, we, we are looking into is blockchain technology, which has nothing to do with digital currency, even though, we, or if you like, digital currency is also based on blockchain. Um, if one day you could have digital currencies that uh, are regulated uh, with transparency, that would probably be great. But at this point, we are not there. So, and uh, because of the unregulated space and the AML uh, risks that they um, that are embedded in these currencies, we are not involved. With regards to technology, clearly every bank has to upgrade its technology. Uh, a bank, I view it as a platform. Uh, that gives access to its clients to all types of technology that are not necessarily generated by the bank itself. Uh, it's very difficult for a bank being a generally lethargic organization with regards to technology innovation to, to try and innovate and produce everything. But there is a lot of fintechs out there that happily will give you their own technology on your platform in order for you to give it to your client. You are not going to recreate Apple Pay or Google Pay or Android Pay or whatever. You're going to open uh, such <coughs> services to your own clients. So every bank as, you know, on the island and I'm sure in the world are working towards this direction. So. One, one comment from me as well, just to clarify, for us in Cyprus, uh, the banks, we don't have any digital currencies at the moment. What there is at the moment is just uh, certain unregulated commodities that are traded with anonymity. And uh, as far as we are concerned, our, our policy doesn't provide for any partner trading. Yes, um, as um, uh, my colleagues mentioned now, we would welcome the introduction of, uh, of a digital currency. 
and uh, regulate, probably regulate and transparent digital currency because that's the way forward. And it is good uh, if we see the recent FATF's definition, it refers to these as virtual assets, which is the most precise definition that could be given. All right, my final question is, whoever wants to be very courageous and take this three-part question, if we close one loophole, which was this incredible loose governance that allowed the separate banking system to be used so well, you're closing that, but aren't the golden visa process, doesn't that bring questionable funding into Cyprus in just a different way? So your comments on the golden visas and how that impacts what you're trying to do, Secondly, as you're closing those accounts that seem suspect, where do you think those accounts are going? Where are they finding uh, looser governance practices than you show? And what do you think about the EU's uh, anti-money laundering, the fifth directive on anti-money laundering? Does this help, or is the EU catching up with you? Or, or it, how do we strengthen the EU? Because once this money enters into an EU country, it can go anywhere. That's both the, the, the blessing of free movement of capital, yet it's the curse when it comes to illicit financing. And then I'm going to turn to our great audience. You want to hit that one first? You're going to be the courageous uh, sure. one first? What was the first leg of the question again? The first question is, what's your perspective on, on golden, golden visas? Right. Meaning, the golden again, visas. these investment uh, for a certain yeah. amount of passports, yes. right? The golden visa, the golden passport that certain uh, very high levels of investment in a country, you are immediately a citizen. How do you combat that? Thank you. Uh, allow me to, as a, to respond to this as from a perspective of a bank, not from a perspective of the government at this point in time. The, uh, any money that will come to the many funds, that will come to the bank because of uh, a passport application, is immediately classed from our perspective as high risk. It takes, it, it requires the, it goes through the normal enhanced due diligence we have for so, high risk. So going through that, that immediately says, blinking yellow lights, there's something here to look and at. And requires the explicit approval of the money laundering compliance officer who has a veto about this. So it, uh, it, it, it gets enhanced due diligence to ensure, because you are right, it could be a source of, again, encouraging funds from illicit activity to come to the island. So, so long as the banking sector is concerned, when it hits the bank, we just apply more stringent, even stringent, or if you like, the stringent of measures that we would apply for the highest risk clients. Now, the government has a program. At this point, it's 540 passports a year, I believe, that can be given, so there is a ceiling. And at this point, the government is bringing changes to the way that it regulates, oversights the passport scheme in order to ensure that uh, it's properly conducted and avoids uh, uh, funds that come from, il from illicit activity. So from that uh, perspective, uh, I feel generally comfortable even though uh, it does give a negative, um, it does give us negative PR quite often for the passport, uh, you know, issuing passports to, to non-Europeans. Where, allow me to take the second leg as well quickly and then I will uh, give to, to my colleagues. The, where do the funds go? They definitely leave the banking sector in Cyprus. This is why the banking sector has deleveraged from eight times to two, two, two and a half times GDP. So they, they, we see the deposits leave. They find themselves in other European Union countries. Not, we don't see, for example, if it, as an example, if it's a Russian deposit, it, we don't see it going back to Russia, but we see it going to European Union countries. There is no specific one country that I can refer to that, that the funds go. It's a dispersion of various countries that uh, in our own experience anyway. So. Uh, I'd just like to say that the so, uh, sort of golden visas uh, program is the basic, effectively this is the EU citizenship program, so it's a matter of implementation. And as Yannis said, the government has announced that they will be taking additional measures to en ensure appropriate due diligence so as not to make any mistakes. Uh, as far as the ML, uh, the fifth ML directive, is concerned, 
will, this will be transposed into na uh, national legislation in um, January, right, Marius? Um, okay, obviously this is positive, but maybe, Marius, you have more information on this, so maybe you can comment. Um, now, as to the first example, I, I would really agree with uh, my colleagues and what Chris Sagi said that the, I wouldn't call it golden visas, but the citizenship by investment program is an EU program. It's not a Cypriot program. It's not a banking, Cypriot banking program. It's not a Cyprus government program. It's an EU program that was made available by the EU to all EU jurisdictions. Yes, there is an increased inherent risk with this. And if this inherent risk cannot be managed on a national basis by the EU member states, then probably now is the time for the EU to think of withdrawing the program. Obviously, at that. As far as we are concerned, we are the banking sector. The good thing about Cyprus is that there is a provision since the inception of the program that any such funds should go through the Cyprus banking system. And that gives us the comfort that at least this robust system that we have just been talking about will apply in the case uh, uh, of uh, Cyprus uh, applications. Now, uh, as to whether, where the funds go, uh, when we shut down, I'm gonna be a bit more courageous than my colleague Yannis here. Uh, yes, but I would agree with him that they go <coughs> into other prime European Union financial services center, like Germany, Luxembourg, uh, Holland, Malta, and the United Kingdom. Uh, they go to other countries as well, but. Primarily, we see them going into prime uh, EU financial services center. Um, and as to the last question, yes, the, the, the fifth EUML directive, in the case it will be transposed into law like uh, in January, like Christagi said, but um, it will not add anything of value uh, to Cyprus because of these immense measures that we have taken. If I, have, if I just tell you that in December 2013, when we have the first directive issued in Cyprus following the banking crisis, the provisions of that directive then is what is aligned today with the fourth EUML directive. So we have adopted measures like, for example, tax evasion, identified as a predicate offense, having local PEPs definitions, etc. These were measures, although introduced in Europe, very recently with the fourth EUML directive earlier this year. Uh, in Cyprus, they were adopted from December 2013. Therefore, yes, probably <laughs> the EU is catching up with the measures that we are introducing. Uh, and I think this is becoming a bit evident on an EU level as well, because, I mean, you must have seen the press and that the EU now is actually considering very, very seriously inserting a single EUML regulator in order to ensure better monitoring and oversight. You know, to see how seriously we take this, I was just thinking now that I've been on more panels on AML issues this year than on anything else. And uh, it's quite weird because usually you would expect uh, executives from a bank to, to talk about growth and business, and yet it's just to point to prove how seriously we take this. Compliance is a cost, but it's actually an investment cost, what? which therefore it's an asset. Do you know why you're having this conversation at the Center for Strategic and International Studies? Because we believe AML is a national security question. So I shouldn't be talking about AML either, but this is so important to the future health of our democracies. Agreed. And you're Agreed. proof of that. I fully agree. Fully agree. All right, I, 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 these two guys have got to get hit first. So uh, we're going to pass the microphone. Please introduce yourself. Keep those questions really tight. We'll let our colleagues be here a little later uh, after to follow up on conversation, but we'll bundle those questions, and then I'll let each of the panelists take a whack. Anders, please. Uh, Anders Rostland, the Atlantic Council. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask about Russians, not uh, as clients, but as owners. When Wechselberg was uh, sanctioned, he owned 9% of uh, Bank of uh, Cyprus. Uh, so I would particularly ask uh, Mr. Skandalis about uh, that. And also, you had uh, uh, Vladimir Stralkovsky as uh, deputy chairman until 2015. 
uh, the former CEO of Norilsk Nickel, a uh, good KGB officer. And uh, I wonder how you handle this, uh, the Russians as owners, how have you sorted out that problem? Thank you. Yes. All right, great. Uh, Paul Massaro, uh, anti-corruption at the U.S. Helsinki Commission. Um, it's great that we sort of talked about where the money goes after Cyprus. I think that's really important. Um, I've seen some reporting that the EU is considering a unified AML body. Uh, have you been part of those discussions? You know, what are your views on those discussions? Uh, is that the right way forward? Because, uh, you know, some way this needs to be tackled holistically in the EU. You know, the country by country thing is just, you know, <laughs> not going to do the trick. Did I see a uh, hand over here? Yes, we'll take one last question and then I'll turn to you. Yeah, and I could also add to Paul the, the role of the European Banking Authority, how much we've got to beef up those requirements. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Irene Pasternak was Navigant, a guidehouse company. Um, so I, I want to, to ask two questions, hopefully not too complicated. Um, one is where do you see the biggest AML risks for your banks and your country uh, right now? And uh, second question is, um, do you, if you would give an advice to other countries after you went through the crisis, what would that advice be? Thank you. Thank you, wonderful questions. Marius, I'm gonna start with you, Chris, and then we'll just work down the line, and honestly, you're gonna have the final say here. Okay. Yes, Marius. Um, okay, I'll start with uh, our first guest uh, question. Uh, I'll start from the second name, uh, Mr. Stragovsky. Mr. Stragovsky is not anymore the vice chair of the board for many years now. Uh, he has withdrawn. So uh, we have no issue at all or any sort of relationship with that person at all. Uh, coming to Victor Wechselberg, yes, Victor Wechselberg uh, had um, <coughs> accumulated a percentage of around 9% between the period of 2014 to 2017. Once his name appeared in uh, the SDN's list in April 2016, he has received uh, a letter from us, basically informing him that his voting rights in a, for any significant decision were cancelled, and also informing him that in the case Bank of Cyprus ever distributed any dividends, that would be placed in a frozen account. So basically we have taken the prescribed provisions as per OFAC, that OFAC, OFAC is applying for any SDNs with more than 50% of holding in any company. But we have taken that, again, on a conscious basis even for a 9% interest. Um, I would like also to comment on the ladies' um, questions here. That uh, Can you please repeat the, the first part of your question? Yes, the, in terms of AML. In terms of AML, uh, the biggest risk that we are facing and uh, uh, is persisting there is the aspect of tax evasion. Many, many people, individuals and legal uh, uh, companies, uh, legal persons, pursue uh, the aspect of very, very complicated uh, tax, uh, very ta uh, complicated tax planning structures, which really touch the edge of tax evasion, and we need to be having the competency in order to identify, evaluate such structures, and take the relevant decisions. Uh, however, we built on the competency of that, uh, and we ensure that uh, our staff is highly competent. We use uh, very good technology in doing so, and also, at the same time, we are ahead, and we are actually one of the first countries that have accepted the implementation of tax six, which aims in actually identifying the possibilities, not of tax evasions, but even for any simple tax planning structures and, re and reporting them to the EU. And we welcome such regulations that aim to that respect. And uh, your last question about... Advice to other governments. Yes. Uh, advice to other governments, and especially uh, other EU governments, would be First of all, to be sincere, transparent, and accept, consciously ac accept that uh, there are loopholes. No, not necessarily in their country, but there are loopholes, and they need to accept that uh, they need to take certain measures. And uh, in, rather than presenting on paper 
what their policy framework says and what their regulations say, it's better to demonstrate results. And that is what differentiates Cyprus today from any other jurisdiction. We came here in order to present via results what we have foregone, how we suffered, and what we sacrificed to reach this position here. My colleague before, Christakis uh, Patsalidis, uh, he mentioned about how many millions we have foregone with these terminations. Do you know how much turnover we have lost as a banking sector? 37 billion euros. 37 billion euros is three times the GDP of Cyprus. And we have foregone it, and we are glad that we did it because we consider that as an investment for our customers and stakeholders. Allow me to offer a different perspective on EML, uh, sources of EML risk. For, from uh, how I observe this, my biggest concern is transactional-related activity of clients, especially uh, non-Cypriot entity clients. The accepting a client and proving source of wealth, etc., is relatively easier, I would say, than identifying and be, be able to identify any illicit activity that happens due to transactions that flow through the bank. Transactions that arise out of invoicing, um, for purchase or sale of, of goods for which you need very high training and awareness and understanding of the staff to be able to understand whether it falls within the remit of the client, whether the good is not for dual good as they call it. For example, it can also be used for explosives, if it's fertilizers, for example, etc. And there you require quite a lot of training, forensics, but also good systems to be able to catch this. And for me, uh, this is also related to trade finance activity. For example, what gets loaded on ships, and, you know, bills of lading, etc. So these are actually issues that you need very high uh, training and ex experience and expertise. And that is my biggest concern in terms of AML risk at this point in time. I would also like to make a reference on um, a unified European regu regulatory environment with regards to AML very much in favor. We have also seen the reports, but we have not seen a follow-up on, on those reports. The, uh, our, actually, both our banks are regulated by the single supervisory mechanism of the European Central Bank, and it works very well. It, it, en it ensures much better governance than we ever had, and it also ensures a level playing field, and therefore you don't have anti-competitive issues because you have one regulated, regulating it. I hope the, the, this, this is pervasive to all areas apart from AML uh, issues. So I hope that AML is also goes under the, the wing of the ECB or EBA, uh, and therefore we have one regulator going forward. With the national competent authorities, of course, providing local supervision, implementation, etc., as it happens with the single supervisory mechanism. I also have a couple of comments, one on the advice and one on uh, EU-wide um, AML. Supervision. Now, my own advice would be once you establish the tone from the top, then it's persevere, persevere, persevere. This is, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be resistance. Initially, it's going to be costly, uh, but one has to persist and must take the pain. There is no easy way you know, to fight this. Uh, so, I mean, th this is my, I mean, you hang in there. That's my more or less, my own message. Now, as far as um, EU-wide uh, AML uh, supervision is concerned, I would go a step beyond that. Um, we spent uh, this week here in Washington meeting with the U.S. Treasury, the State Department, Congress, Senate, and what we discussed, and we, I mean, we sort of encouraged the discussion, is to have a more open and a more uh, to have a dialogue, an ongoing dialogue on these issues, to share information to the extent possible and with the, in the context of the law, so that we, you know, we're, we're a very small center by international standards, so that if we have such information or technical assistance, then we can be much more effective, and then we can help out, you know, uh, uh, the region. So. I think in more international cooperation is necessary in order to, you know, to claim victory on, on financial crime. Well, thank you so much. I'm not sure we can ever declare victory. I think this is just the fight 
every single day. I thank you so much. All of the conversation here has been so reinforcing. I have to say, just of our own research, that the, this this question of tax evasion avoidance is the next fight. The complexity that we have perfect laws that aren't being implemented. A lot of this is below that what we call the threshold of illegality, which is a financial gray zone. And our adversaries are working in that financial gray zone, and we're catching up with their innovation. So this has been incredible. I would not have been able to sustain this conversation without my wingman, Eric Lorber. Thank you so much for diving into those technicalities that are so important. But many thanks to Marios Christianis for really helping us understand. Sometimes we get stuck on a, this is a terrible problem that's not being fixed. It's important for us to understand how it's being addressed but that the fight continues, and we hope that dialogue will continue very much. Please join me in thanking our guests for a thoughtful conversation.